Hi, this is Tzvi Freeman for Chabad.org. You may have read some of my articles on the site or seen some of my books. But for now, I want you to just sit back and let me turn your world on its head. So is Rosh Hashanah a patriarchal holiday? I mean, it's, it's the day of judgment. It literally, Rosh Hashanah means the head of the year. And we call God Avinu Melkeinu, our father, not mother, and king, not queen. So you can't get more patriarchal than that. But then we also declare that today is the birth of the world. Men don't give birth. So maybe Rosh Hashanah is a feminine kind of day. We can also get into this make-me-your-king request. That's the reason given for the blowing of the shofar, to coronate God, so to speak. But isn't that a little more than self-defeating? If he's the ultimate patriarchal authority, isn't he compromising that status by making this request of us year after year as though he were somehow dependent on us for his authority? So the short explanation is that Well, Rosh Hashanah is the day that God created the human being, male and female, he created them. Yet Rosh Hashanah is not about male energy or about female energy. It's about the dynamic between them. As described in the Medrash and other classic Jewish texts, Rosh Hashanah is the beginning of a complex dynamic between those energies, eliciting something that transcends both. So let's get into that step by step. Go through the text and you'll see that the relationship between man and woman is by far the most common metaphor for our relationship with God. In Tanakh, that's the Hebrew Bible, in Talmud and Medrash, even more so in Zohar and Kabbalistic works. And that makes sense. After all, the creator of this world chose a male-female dynamic for generating life other than in a few rare instances. According to the Zohar, he implemented a quite similar dynamic to generate time, space, and existence as we know it. And that's also not hard to fathom. Think of any time you have been creative. Yeah, people tend to think of creativity as a unilateral, top-down experience. The, The artist is ostensibly just releasing creative energies expressing himself. But the artist perceives things quite differently. She has an idea. She has the clay in her hands to realize that idea. But somehow, the clay speaks to her fingers, her fingers to her mind, her mind to something deep inside, and a work of art entirely new and fascinating emerges. The same with an author. He imagines a story. He carefully crafts the characters to carry out that story, only to discover his own characters informing him of a new direction the story must take. As, as is befitting, they declare of characters such as us. Yes, character hijack is real. And it's also the dynamo of the very best novels. Or take Jim Henson's puppets. They were perpetually being remodeled. It was a collaborative effort between the puppets or the Muppets and the Muppeteers. As one of the staff put it, 
Kermit and Miss Piggy kept on telling us how they really needed to look. So examples scream out from literally every arena of human expression without exception. Where did good comedians discover their best material, if not out of that vital interaction with a live audience? What would Jackie Mason have been if every performance had been on Zoom or Clubhouse with Mute All? Why is it that the best music history is produced emerged out of musicians sitting down with new designs of old instruments, whether Beethoven with a pianoforte or the Beatles with electric guitars and track-laying studios. Who came up with the music, the composer or the technology, or both? In fact, just the other day, I cited a 12-string Martin guitar crying out to me from the wall of a used goods shop, and once in my hands, it whispered to me the sounds it needed me to play and gently urged me to take it home. We're seeing the same technology feedback loop today with what they call AI, digital widgets and robots that simulate decision-making and learning. The most exciting phenomenon in the field are the unexpected interactions between those artificial devices and authentic intelligence, real human beings. It's at that nexus of organism and mechanism that something really new emerges. The mother matrix of all creativity is Torah itself, the blueprint of the cosmos. There's Torah as it comes down from heaven as a divine monologue. We call it the written Torah. Then there's what we call the oral Torah, the dialogue between man and God. As the sages struggle to apply God's word to situations as they arise. These are the debates of masters such as Abaya and Rava in the Talmud, the creamy, rich, ocean-deep homilie and metaphor of the Medrash, the brilliant abstraction and application of Maimonides. There, in the convergence of sacred dictate and human ingenuity, that's where the beauty of Torah appears in all its glory. Creativity, true creativity, emerges not from any single origin, but out of a collision of forces running in opposite directions. God is in the explosion. Now, Rabbi Sholem Dovber of Lubavitch, we call him the Rebbe Rashab, he articulated this idea in one of the best studied texts in the Chabad, composed at the cusp of the 20th century, where he describes communication as feminine energy. Speaking starts with ideas and emotions, he writes, but it ends up tapping into something much deeper. When we simply express ourselves, we might squeeze a little more juice out of our brains, but when what concerns us is not what we are saying, but what the other person is hearing, then wellsprings gush open at the core of our psyche, and words and ideas we hadn't dreamed of flow forth as if out of nowhere. That explains well the words of Rabbi Hanina in the Talmud. He said, I learned much from my teachers, more from my colleagues, but from my students, I learned more than all combined. It wasn't that his students informed him of things that, that he didn't know, but that in the interaction with students, more than with colleagues, newness emerged. So how does that work? Rabbi Shalom Dovber cites the words of Lachadodi. It's a mystical poem sung in almost all Jewish congregations at the en entry of Shabbat, with Shabbat being the feminine day of the week. So there it says, 
סוף מעשה במחשבה תחילה, the final act was in thought from the beginning. The final act, that's not the delivery, but the reception of your words by your audience. It's that reception and the feedback it delivers that reaches before the beginning of thought to a place where speaker and listener are not separate entities, but fused as one. And it's from there that the most creative ideas emerge. So these are the masculine and feminine forces of creation. The top-down content, seminal information, explicit command chain, that's principally male energy. The same with the great chain of being, the cosmic hierarchy discussed in all ancient cosmologies. The feedback loop, where things actually gestate and get real. That's principally fem- female energy, which is dominant. Well, the ultimate woman is planet Earth. The ultimate artist is the gardener. You prepare the soil and plant a seed, water the seed, protect its plot. A tree grows. You are the male. Planet Earth is the female. Who gave birth to the tree? You or planet Earth? So the male energies seem to be initiate, initiating everything. But down the line, nobody ever said the conception begins with the male. But look, is dominance really relevant here? It doesn't matter who wins in the end, the masculine or the feminine. Ultimately, what we're looking at is neither of these. The final act was in thought from the beginning. In the convergence of these two energies... A third element emerges, one that transcends male and female and any other dichotomy, the ultimate origin of both. That's the closest we get to God himself. And indeed, that's the winning explanation for why God created the world to run on this dynamic, this nexus of opposites, to provide a window upon his own reality, upon a, a perfect singularity, a true oneness, where the notion of opposites simply dissolves. So all this explains an awful lot more about Rosh Hashanah than you might expect. The Kabbalists talk about the night of Rosh Hashanah as the Nesira, the sundering apart of Adam and Eve, initially created as a single being, now divided into two. Why are they sundered apart? So that they can meet one another face to face. Now, that's a paradigmatic image for the bifurcation that begins the creative process. God decides he's going to make a universe of two opposing and complementary energies, the energy of transcendence and the energy of immanence, male and female, descending light and returning light. And out of the union will emerge existence, life, and eventually the meaning of all things. These are the two names by which God is most often called in Torah. There's the four-letter ineffable name. Well, that's code-named Havaya for practical purposes. And that name says that he's beyond time. And then there's the name Elohim that says he's found in all the forces of nature. Havaya is the name of God as he is creating top-down. Elohim is the name of God as he's interacting with his creation, where the emphasis is on the characters of the story, taking careful 
account into how they need to play out the roles they've been assigned. These are the two lovers of whom Solomon sings in his Song of Songs. Often in Tanakh, it's God and his name. In the Talmud, Medrash, Zohar, it's God as the Holy One, blessed be he, and that same God in cameo as the Shekhinah, God's presence in this world. Every mitzvah we do, teaches the Zohar, is to return these two names back to their original state of perfect union. The world needs to see not two, but only one. Know as clear as day, says Moses, that Havaya is Elohim, and the heavens beyond and the earth beneath, there is nothing else. Here's how Rabbi Shneur Zalman of Liadi reads that in his Gateway of Unity and Faith. When you know that Havaya is Elohim, and Elohim is Havaya, that these are simply two modalities of the same God working in perfect tandem to enact the creative process, then you will realize as clear as day that there is truly no other existence other than that perfect oneness. Rabbi Yitzchak Lurlia, the Arizal, described this union as a process spread over history. In this way, he deciphers an extremely bewildering medrash concerning a dispute between the sun and the moon. You can read more about that in the lunar files. Initially, explains the Arizal, the feminine element, known as malchut, royalty, is nothing more than a dimensionless point beneath the foundation. Gradually, malchut rises through ten stages, first to simply reconnect, but then to be abreast with the masculine, until at the threshold of the messianic era, the feminine will transcend the masculine altogether, fulfilling the verse, a woman of valor is the crown of her husband. Through our mitzvahs, the Arizal explains, we are the agents of this tikkun, this repair. The entire story of the Jewish people, very much the feminine of the nations, is to promote that feminine quality back up to its origin. Once complete, the essence of God himself, true oneness, is able to shine in our world. So note that the feminine is not reabsorbed within the masculine, neither does it usurp the masculine. So it's, it's, it's totally different. It's when the two energies are at the peak of their fulfillment, then in the exquisite harmony between them, emerges the ultimate light. So how does this help uh, understand Rosh Hashanah? For one thing, it explains this puzzling request for us to coronate God every year again and again. That request is coming from him as he plays the masculine role. The God point within us, our divine souls, plays the feminine role. As much as we depend on him as judge and father, he chooses to depend on us to complete the story and imbue this world with meaning and light to make it a worthwhile investment. We make him a real king. Why does he choose to do so? To provide dominance to the feminine energy embodied by us. This way, the universe receives each year from a yet deeper hidden place, much as those wellsprings we dis earlier described gushing forth when we speak to a receptive audience. It also explains an even more puzzling anomaly of the day. In our Rosh Hashanah prayers, we call this day the first day of your works. We also call it the birth of the world. 
Why? Because according to tradition, it's the day the first human being was created. But wait, the human being was not the birth of the world. Neither was he created on the first day of creation, but the sixth and last day. And that's exactly the point. Until there was a feedback loop to creation, nothing had begun. Humanity was the female of creation, and therefore the point where all begins. You can see more on that in Rosh Hashanah and the warping of time. So to every year since, the rebirth of a meaningful world is up to us. Every year on Rosh Hashanah. How? By playing the feminine role of God. So now, by all calculations, we're now at the final phase of the rise of the feminine as described by the Arizal. That explains a lot. But the crucial point is that we're not talking about the rise of woman, but the rise of femininity. According to all the above, perhaps we can describe femininity as the capacity to be receptive to another, to say, it doesn't have to be about me, but rather to draw out the inner powers of others. That capacity is the womb of life, the healing waters, the gateway to the messianic era. You know, in the English language, the soil, the dirt, the mud that gave birth to us, that supports us, nurtures us, all these terms are soiled, dirtied, and muddied with the ugliest connotations. Not so in Hebrew. We are called Adam because we were formed from the Adama, the ground beneath our feet. And that's not pejoratively. We plead to our Maker three times a day that our lives should be as the soil to everyone, as to say, let my life be as fertile soil from which many others may flourish. True, naughty little children may step all over you. What do you care? You stand at the gateway of the very next line of that prayer, Open my heart to your Torah. Nurture, empathy, knowing life from within. When we can properly appreciate these qualities, at least as much as we appreciate dominance, power, and transcendence, then there will be a balance of harmony between men and women, between humanity and planet Earth, between the universe and its creator. In the words of Zechariah the prophet, God will be one and his name will be one. May that be sooner than we can imagine and may all you males and females be blessed with a good and sweet year.